Hey guys, we have a super show for you today. I am talking with Steve Hendricks. Steve is the author of his new book, The Oldest Cure in the World, Adventures in the Art and Science of Fasting. If you have ever wanted to know anything about fasting, this is the book. Not only that, it is full of great stories. Steve is a fantastic writer and a great storyteller, uh, and he's very passionate about fasting. I really think you're going to like this conversation. It was a whole lot of fun, except for when he turned the peanut butter question uh, against me. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. So Steve, you got a new book. It is The Oldest Cure in the World, uh, The Adventures in the Art and Science of Fasting. My first question for you about this book is good. It's awesome. But how long did it take you to write this book? Like, or, or, or how long did it take you to live to write this book, to experience everything? I mean, like this is a, this is truly, I mean, it's the history of fasting. It's the myths, the legends, the science, the experiences. I mean, it's everything. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a meaty book, isn't it? Um, I hope I keep the pages turning, you know, that it's, that it's a fair, fairly brisk read, but well, it's stories like, you know, stories make the pages turn. So yeah, you've got, you, you've got stories. Good. So, you know, the short answer is to actually write the book about two and a half, three years. But as you suggest, there was a lot of living going on. Yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. The, the background to it is that about, um, well, I guess 10 years ago now I published an, uh, article about fasting for Harper's magazine. It's the first time, it's the last time so far that I've ever landed on the cover of a fancy magazine. And apparently what happens when you do that is publishers come to you and say, hey, do you wanna turn this article into a book? Um, and you know those books that you read that were once magazine articles and they never should have become books because there just wasn't enough there? It's kind of the way I felt. I just didn't feel that the science was far enough along. I thought, I thought it made a very compelling uh, magazine article. I didn't feel like we had enough science 10 years ago to really make a very compelling book. Um, they also wanted me to talk more about the history about it. And I wasn't sure that I would find that interesting, but they also wanted me to write about my own experiences because in that article, I'd, I'd had this 20 day fast. And, and I said, well, that's pretty much my experience. I just have a couple of years of fasting experience. I don't have a lot to say. And what happened over the last 10 years is the science just exploded. The history um, I started dabbling and digging into, and it was fascinating. Um, and as more books appeared, a lot of them, I hate to say, got the history wrong, and I wanted to try to set some of that as straight as I could. And then the third thing was my own experiences uh, had evolved um, in a way that I thought was compelling because uh, I'm 52 now. In my 40s, my health uh, badly deteriorated. Uh, and uh, I have no doubt in my mind that it was um, fasting that uh, made the turnaround. Um, and I thought the reason that was compelling, there are all sorts of stories out there about people who fasted their way to health, right? My problems were mental and neurological, it was mental health. And there hasn't been a lot written about fasting for psychological and psychiatric health. And so I went digging around in that and thought, oh, well, here's a story that really hasn't been told and I think could help a lot of people who are struggling with similar problems. And that's How? what the book ended up being. It's a, it's a mix of, the, as you say, the science of fasting, the history of fasting and my own personal experiences. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's thorough. It's a little bit of everything, um, but it is, 
it is a story though. So it's, it is a page turner. So yes, you did it. You did a great job with yeah, that. Thank you. Um, personally for you, you kind of touched on it, but how has, how has fasting made a difference or changed your life? Yeah. So, you know, the first way I got into fasting, well, there was sort of two reasons. One was I wanted to lose weight. Like a lot of people, I just started putting on pounds in my twenties and didn't understand why. And I thought that fasting, uh, well, you know, it's, it's very good for weight loss. You don't eat, you lose weight. Um, I've since come to the belief that fasting can be a very useful tool for losing weight. Uh, but I think the best research says that the, the main, sort of the way exercise can be a very good tool, but you, you can only rarely exercise your way out of overweight. Um, you know, diet is sort of the key, I think, is where most research is going. So, um, but the other reason was I really wanted to, um, uh, to, to figure out what I could do to try to live longer. And I was fascinated by the science that showed in laboratory animals that fasting them caused them to live substantially longer, up to 80% longer. You know, in humans, that would be the equivalent of living to be about 140 or something. That's how I came to fasting. As I mentioned, I had this deterioration in health <laughs> in my 40s and what fasting has sort of evolved in, I'm still interested in those things, but what's it, what it's evolved into for me um, is a, a tool with which to maintain my health. Um, and, and I would say that the, the two big ways that I do that are through the two types of fasting. There's, there's prolonged fasting, uh, which is technically just any fast for more than a day, but you know, typically means a week or weeks under medical supervision. Um, or daily fasting, which a lot of people know is intermittent fasting, uh, what scientists call time-restricted eating, um, which is uh, simply narrowing your eating window to fewer hours per day and extending your fast you know, through the rest of the day and overnight. And the research into that, um, that daily uh, time-restricted eating turns out to be just extremely fruitful ground for, um, you know, uh, for protecting ourselves from diseases that we don't have and possibly for helping us reverse diseases that we do have. But I, I, I'm pretty certain that one of the reasons that I not only got my health back through prolonged fasting, but have been able to maintain it in the years since has been because of this daily time-restricted eating. And so you mentioned time-restricted eating, uh, also known as intermittent fasting, which is for quite a while now has been a good rage um, <laughs> for fasting. Uh, but your book touches on um, a new way of thinking about it. And I've just seen this start popping up on the internet too, about when you do your time-restricted fasting versus like most people, I think traditionally would do it in the evening, Yep. Uh, like warrior style, uh, one meal a day towards the evening uh, versus now like you mentioned in the book, maybe, maybe doing it in the morning is a, a, yeah. a better alternative. Yeah. So, you know, the, the science is just rock solid that if we narrow our eating window down to, oh, as narrow as six hours a day or so, we get benefits. If we narrow it more than that down to one meal a day, scientists are still, that's still up in the air. Maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. Um, but certainly anything under about 12 hours, we start getting health benefits. So that's solid. And then the question then becomes, well, when should that window be? I, like just about everyone else, as you were talking about, I was habitually a breakfast skipper. No yeah. problem for me to skip breakfast, take my first meal at noon. I love dinner time. I love eating late. I love being out late, right? That's me. <laughs> right. The whole nine yards of it. 
Well, then, uh, damn it, I read this, you know, study, several studies as I was doing this book <laughs> that said, well, actually, it turns out our bodies are hardwired to digest food, process the nutrients from that food, and send those nutrients to work in virtually every cell in our body best early in the day. And we do extremely poorly at um, all, the, all those jobs as the day goes on. So, um, you know, the, the best evidence we have so far suggests that eating in a window that starts probably an hour or two after we wake up and continues for some period of hours, whatever you can do, the best is probably six hours. If it's eight, if it's 10, whatever, anything under 12 is probably helpful. So, so I switched my eating window and thought I would absolutely hate it from about 8.30 in the morning till 2.30 in the afternoon. And it actually turned out to be the biggest, excuse me, the easiest big change that I've ever made in my life. And I wouldn't trade this eating window for the world. Now I can't do it hundred percent of the time. You know, if we have friends over for dinner and they're not on this pattern, I just eat dinner. But let me go back half a step and explain why this is so powerful to people. Cause it is, it's completely counterintuitive. No one would, would think this way. Well, so that, that digestion of food that I talked about. So what happens when we eat later is just to take one example, one process, process in this thing that's been studied very intently um, is our insulin, our glucose and insulin, right? So we, we, we eat meals, glucose gets taken out of our food. It's the sugar in the, in the meals. It gets into our blood vessels, right? And it gets shunted to all the cells where it belongs by insulin. Well, starting about mid-afternoon, our insulin production starts shutting down. So the glucose lingers longer in our blood vessels. It doesn't get into the cells where it belongs. Well, glucose lingering in the blood vessels is one of the causes slash symptoms of diabetes, right? When it stays in our arteries too, too long, it dings up the artery walls and all sorts of diseases can result. When we eat later, our food lingers longer in our gut uh, and so may cause more wear and tear on our gut, which could contribute to leaky gut syndrome. It could also expose us to uh, more of the carcinogens that are in our food, which could contribute to some of the abdominal cancers and colorectal and so on cancers that we see. You know, th there was one study that I talk about in the book that just really brought it home for me as to how good we are at processing uh, anything really, but nutrients in the morning and how bad we are later in the day it was a study of 15,000 attempted suicides in Sri Lanka, where um, the preferred method is pesticide. These are a lot of farmers who've just been devastated by the savage market, um, and they try to kill themselves. Those who tried to kill themselves in the evening were more than twice as likely to survive as those who tried to kill themselves in the morning. Because what happened was the ones who took the pesticides in the morning, the, pest, the poison had just been shunted very efficiently through their entire bodies. And by the time that they were found and rushed to the hospital, it was too late to save most of them. Not so the ones in the evening. The body was so poor at sending all this stuff you know, to all the outer reaches of the body that by the time they were found, they could often be saved if they were gotten to the hospital. So it, you know, it's just... It, it's not something that um, this whole field of what's called chronobiology, the study of you know, time and, and our biological rhythms was not something scientists, it wasn't even on the radar 10, 20 years ago. It's now become a huge field. And a lot of the times when writers like me say, oh, it's a huge field, 
it's the next fad. It'll be a huge field for three minutes and don't worry about it. I, I really think that this one is big because it has very practical implications. For instance, when should we give chemotherapy? It's like the Sri Lanka study. Chemotherapy is just a glorified poison. Well, it turns out you can give chemotherapy and it, it depends on the particular batch of chemicals, it depends on the kind of cancer, but there are studies that show if chemotherapy one time a day, it's twice as effective as if you give it at another time a day. And the same is true with our food that we eat every single day. And the, the nightmare for me is that, you know, I had 50 years of eating at night, which if you listen to these researchers, um, you know, for instance, Sachin Panda of the Salk Institute, who's one of the world's leaders of this, who says eating at night, it's about the worst thing you can possibly do. It will uh, undo just about everything good you did in your eating during the daytime. So that's how powerful these, uh, this hardwiring in our body is. And that's why uh, in these studies that um, they, they do where they have people eat in say an 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, window, you see some incredible things. I'll just tell you one and then I'll shut up and <laughs> let you ask me a question because I've been going on and on. But, but in one study that was just four days of switching people to a roughly 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. window, um, four days, their autophagy went up 22%. Autophagy oh. is the cellular recycling process. That's the process by which our body uh, 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 renews, uh, reuses old and worn out parts. The more autophagy we do, it seems, the less disease we get because those worn out parts aren't turning into disease. Four days, they got between a fifth and a quarter more cellular recycling. It's just astonishing. Imagine what a lifetime of it might do. So if you're listening, if you don't think science is cool, you're missing out. Um, but <laughs> but dang it, Steve, you're gonna mess you turning my whole world upside down because I know I enjoy Mine too. <laughs> I enjoy dinner at night. <laughs> so so there is a, a, a possible excuse me, a possible compromise. Now the science on this is young, but this is important because it half the people, well, three quarters of the people listening to us are gonna say, this idiot wants me to stop eating dinner, right? Okay, here's the compromise. Stack your calories early. The research shows this, this adage that you may have heard, eat breakfast like a, a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper. Turns out that's actually, it seems true. Good advice. So if, if you still wanna eat dinner, you can do it. Just have a lighter dinner, have it as early as you can. Don't do it at 10 o'clock at night and keep the calories lighter. Put most of your calories at breakfast and or lunch. And I think that that is possible. This is purely speculation. I think it's possible that that's why the Spaniards are some of the longest lived uh, people in the country. Among major nations, it's like Japan and Spain, neck and neck. They're at the very top. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Spain, they eat you know, dinner at nine o'clock at night. What's going on? Well, if you've been to Spain, you know what's going on. They eat their huge meal at lunch. The nighttime meal is not like our dinner where it's the main meal of the day. It's almost like a snack in some places that may be a successful pattern for, you know, avoiding disease and longevity. Well, I'm going to go ahead and thank you now. I'm sure you've just changed my life. I'll let you know. I'm going to, because I'm, I'm crazy enough to do this. I'm going to make it work. All right. You let so, me know how it goes. I will. Uh, the other thing I want to thank you for is you actually have the jet lag fast in the book. And I guarantee you, I'm going to be trying that. <laughs> Yeah, so I tell this story of when we went to uh, India, oh gosh, this was a, a decade or so ago, um, where my wife and I did this 
jet lag fast. We didn't see any need to fast our son who was, you know, I think it was a fourth grader then, um, fifth grader, uh, because kids don't really suffer from jet, jet lag nearly as badly as, as parents. And it turned out my wife and I didn't suffer from jet lag at all. We just got up and we're ready to go. And it's very, it's very simple. You know, you basically stop eating for 16 hours before you, um, uh, before you, uh, well, you're going to break your fast at dawn of your new time zone that you're going to. So if it's 7 a.m. in Bombay, you know, that's when you're going to have breakfast. 16 hours before that, you stop eating and that's it. And the reason that it works is, so scientists um, knew for quite a long time um, that uh, light controlled many of our circadian rhythms. And that's true. We have a master clock in our brain. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Um, and in there, in that SCN, as it's known, um, that's entrained by mostly the blue light that, that comes into our window, into our eyes every morning at dawn. All right. Well, it turns out this is the mo more recent discovery. We also have all these peripheral clocks throughout our body, and they exist in virtually every single cell of our body. A great many of them, maybe it's the majority, I'm not certain about this, but a great many of them, those are set by food. So you can, you can, actually, um, <laughs> you can actually trick your body if you um, decouple when you're eating from the normal light rhythms that it's used to, right? So that's why it works. So when you stop eating at a, you know, it's, it's lunchtime, you're used to eating at lunch, your body says, where's the food? And you say, oh, I'm not eating the food, I'm gonna get on a plane all your peripheral clocks stop and they are waiting to reset and the cue to when to reset is when you give them food. So if you give them food when it's breakfast time in the new time zone, at the same time you're flying there, the lights coming in, the, the airplane windows and so on, your eyes are getting hit by that blue light. And so the, the circadian clock in your brain is being reset as well as all these circadian clocks throughout your body and harmonizing those together appears to be what makes that anti-jet-like fast work. And so I, this is, I accidentally, I didn't know it until I read read your book, but I I, I have accidentally discovered that. I just didn't understand it. Um, <laughs> I flew to Australia, you know, it's a 14-hour flight from California to yeah. Sydney. or um, And it's, so as soon as you get on the plane, though, they serve you dinner as soon as the plane leaves the runway. Yep. Um, and I didn't eat, uh, so I ate the dinner. And then I did not eat anything until I skipped all the rest of the meals. But then at breakfast time, like when it's their morning and the, the sun's coming up, they serve you breakfast right before the plane lands. Yeah. And I ate it and I felt fine. Like I didn't have to like, it didn't take me days to get used to Australian time or anything. I, it was just pretty neat, but I never yeah. knew why. That's fabulous. Now I should caution, it doesn't work for everyone. People have different reactions. When I've used it, I don't do a lot of international traveling these days, but in the past, when, when I've used it, sometimes it just took the edge off my jet lag. I still felt like crap, but I mean, I have really severe jet lag where I feel terrible for a whole week. Yeah. So just to feel terrible for a day, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. If you can take the edge off, why not? Right. Yeah. All right. So I got to ask you, the book is called the oldest cure in the world. And I, you had one guy, one doctor, he, he's like, well, it's probably easiest to ask what it won't cure, what fasting won't cure. <laughs> right. So what can fasting do for the body as far as helping the body heal? Yeah, so, so for healing, the prolonged fasting is where we have the best evidence for actually reversing disease. 
And it is, um, as, as you said, Otto Buchinger, this German doctor of the 20th century, fasting doctor said when he was asked, what can, it, what can fasting heal? He would say, better to ask me what it can't heal because it's a shorter list. And uh, you know, I've got a, a list in the book that's only a partial list that's probably a list of 50 different diseases or something. So it's everything from, gosh, arthritis and gout to um, type two diabetes. We have known for a century, that was a century ago, was the first time that a French Italian doctor cured type two diabetes with fasting. Childhood ep epilepsy, same thing, cured by fasting first um, in America in that case, um, more than a hundred years ago. Um, fasting uh, can slow some forms of cancer. Um, it doesn't appear to be able to reverse most of them, but excitingly, we do know that fasting can reverse at least one cancer, follicular lymphoma, which um, until now, doctors would have told you is incurable. It's a certain death sentence. Um, fasting can is super good for some reason, we don't know why, at um, reversing uh, autoimmune diseases. So rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, um, ulcerative colitis. Um, it's very good at um, asthma. It's very good at allergies. It seems to be especially good at reversing skin diseases, including stubborn, stubborn ones like psoriasis and eczema, even garden variety acne. The, the thing to know, you know, when you hear this, it sounds like, again, who's this crazy guy like spouting all this crap? If it cured all this, wouldn't everyone know about it? And in fact, fasting doctors have been trying to tell everyone forever, but because it sounds crazy, they haven't been getting much attention. The reason it's able to work on such a wide range of diseases is because it works at a very basic systemic level. It's initiating these repairs to your cells in every single part of your body. You know, the, the number of your cells that are each undertaking small little repairs, but they all add up, um, is just, you know, I mean, it, it, it's millions and millions and millions of cells. It's just incredible. And that's why it's able to reverse so many of these conditions. Now, a caveat, quite often, it takes quite a real fast in order to reverse these conditions. Um, the case that I start the book with um, that has been written up and published in uh, peer-reviewed journals, the British Medical Journal, was this was one of the reversals of follicular lymphoma, this cancer of the, of lymph the lymphatic system. Um, and um, uh, it took, if I remember correctly, 20 days before this 42-year-old woman was able to, uh, 20 days of fasting on water only in a fasting clinic supervised by doctors before she was able to reverse her cancer. It's not like you're gonna go on a five-day you know, fast and get rid of your rheumatoid arthritis. And the other thing to know is, um, Fasting for curing diseases seems to work best when you have not had the disease forever and ever. If you've been a type two diabetic for 25 years and you fast, you may get a reduction in your symptoms. You may be able to take less ins insulin. You probably won't completely reverse your type two diabetes according to the doctors, the fasting doctors uh, whom I have interviewed, um, but it can reverse an awful lot. And it provides a lot of hope for people who you know, otherwise are told instance, that rheumatoid arthritis uh, thing that I mentioned, who are told this is a progressive disease. It simply cannot be reversed. Uh, it turns out fasting can actually reverse some of these diseases. And one of the beautiful things that we have now finally is some science that's explaining why that's so, enforcing 
uh, more and more doctors to take fasting seriously, uh, which is a big improvement over the past. That is, it is, it's really, it's fascinating. Um, but you're saying an early approach is better than a late approach when it comes it to fasting. Seems, it. Yeah, so it got, certainly uh, seems to be that way. So here's a question for you, um, especially on the internet, fasting seems to be synonymous with um, the ketogenic diet. Do they have to go together? No, <laughs> um, no, it, it, it's, it's a very understandable association because when you go into fat, when you, when you fast, you go into ketosis, right? Ketosis is where, for those who, who might not know, I'm sure almost everyone knows by now, but you, when you fast, eventually you, you burn your fat for fuel. Uh, the fat breaks down into various byproducts, one of which are ketone bodies. That's the main fuel that the body eventually runs on, on a, on a long enough fast. So that's called ketosis. People say, well, if you're fasting and you're in ketosis and you get all these repairs and benefits and so on, why don't we just try to stay in ketosis the whole rest of our lives or as much of our lives as possible? Totally makes sense. I understand it. Unfortunately, there are some flaws in that thinking. So one is that um, ketosis does not appear to be the cause of all of the repairs that we see in fasting. Now, ketosis certainly does cause some of the good things that we see in fasting. We know, for instance, that when we fast, um, there's this... Um, protein in our brains called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. And what it's great for is um, maintaining the existing neurons that we have, improving the connections between those neurons, because it's the connections that you know need to fire right for our brains to work right, um, and for creating new connections and new neurons. It's fabulous for that. It is almost certainly um, increased uh, through ketosis. That's great, but that's, uh, seems to be from the scientists who I have read and talked to, that seems not to be the case with the majority of the benefits that we get from fasting. So, um, but you could say, okay, well, okay, I don't get all the benefits when I'm eating a ketogenic diet on my own. Why shouldn't I just, I do something and get some of the benefits. And, and, and there the problem for me is um, we have, you know, everyone means something different by ketogenic diet. In the medical literature, it means a diet that's like 75 to 90% fat, which almost no normal human can eat, you know, mm. and that is used to, to cure very specific diseases, uh, like some forms of epilepsy, for instance. Most people mean just a super high fat diet, right? And very low carbs. The problem is we have decades, literally decades of research showing um, long-term danger. You may feel pretty good on that uh, at first, um, it can certainly, uh, decrease your blood pressure. Uh, it can lower your weight. Um, but, uh, what we find in sort of longer studies are, well, we know from the high fat studies, you get increased heart disease, you get increased stroke, uh, and heart attack. Uh, we have increases in dementia on people who are on high fat diets long-term. We have, gosh, you know, what else? Uh, in the short to medium term, we have studies that show an increase in inflammation body-wide, a narrowing of the arteries, you're killing off your healthy gut bacteria. Uh, there are studies that associate very strongly um, the ketogenic diet um, with uh, an increase in uh, early death. I mean, I could go down a whole list, leaky gut and atrial fibrillation and constipation and diarrhea and headaches, all these things keep getting reported as rising, rising, rising on a keto diet. So for the long term, 
it's kind of a, um, um, I, you know, I can't say with certainty that this, you know, if someone presents me with a keto diet, I can't say with certainty that specific diet's going to give you a heart attack or dementia or something like that. I can say the odds point very heavily in that direction. And I'm very concerned for this mass wave of people eating these super high fat diets um, who unfortunately uh, may be, the science suggests, setting themselves up for some real long-term harm, even though you may feel pretty good right now. Although having said that, I will say, I'll tell you about two trials. One was a trial of people who were put on a keto diet for one week. In just one week, their attention spans and their reaction times dropped significantly. There was another trial of five days on the keto diet and people had trouble um, remembering things and trouble performing complex tasks. So, you know, um, that said, there are some good things in the keto diet. You know, a lot of keto diets I see are like, well, cut out all the processed crap, right? Um, stop drinking the Cokes, no more Big Macs. You know, you can, you can eat all the fat and meat you want, but not, not at McDonald's, you know, get some grass-fed beef or whatever, you know. There are improvements over the standard American diet when you get on almost any diet, <laughs> almost anyone, right? So if people are feeling better, what I would suggest is just, I would, I would have you take a close look at, are you feeling better because you're eating all this fat and you're cutting out you know, broccoli and carrots and other carbohydrates? Or are you feeling better because you cut out ultra processed food and you're no longer eating Oreos and drinking, I don't know what, Coke or Red Bull or something. Um, and so, so, so that's my concern. The other, the flip side of that is um, I'm not aware of any fasting clinic in North America uh, that fasts their patients and then puts them on a ketogenic diet. So when you ask, do they have to go hand in hand? No. And although the fasting clinics of Europe tend to be a little more, um, little more uh, animal product friendly than the fasting clinics of the United States, um, they don't put you on a ketogenic diet either. Some of them do sort of shade you in a keto-ish direction. They're sort of experimenting with that. And I'll be interested to see where they go. Um, but, you know, you do not have to end up on a ketogenic diet. And in fact, most of the studies that show um, reversals of rheumatoid arthritis or reversals of high blood pressure or things like that, what they do to maintain it is put them on a, uh, put the patients on a plant-based diet. Uh, and they find that, well, to go back a step here, we have 200 years of experience from fasting doctors who had the, the, the very important question of, well, if we take the food away and these people get better, could it have been the food that was making them sick? And then now that they're better, what do we refeed them? Because we don't want to refeed them the same stuff to keep them from getting sick again. So after experimenting all these, uh, well, two centuries really, on what to feed people, um, most fasting doctors have come down to some form of a plant-based diet. Some allow some animal products, some don't. Uh, very, very, very few. Uh, it's the exception that say, go to a keto diet, those ones, um, like uh, say Dr. Jason Fung, for instance, who's a fan of the keto diet. I think he's a great, well-meaning guy. I mean him no, no harm or anything, um, but he doesn't have experience you know, fasting 40,000 patients over 40 years or something. Um, and I'm not sure that he can uh, point to you know, decades long success in um, you know, thousands of patients. So that's, that's the yeah. long story. <laughs> no, that's great. Because my next question was, well, if fasting's a reset, 
well, now what? Like, how do you get back into life and like still reap the benefits of because you don't want to like say you hit your head against the wall all the time. We'll stop hitting your head and then you feel better. And once you feel better, you start hitting your head against the wall again. Like that's not not the answer. So. Yeah. So one of the joys of, of fasting is that reset you talk about. And there's actually some research being done on this by um, the folks over at the True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California, about an hour north of San Francisco, where which is America's largest uh, fasting clinic and oldest fasting clinic. And they're doing some research where they're finding, um, they've long known about this, a taste reset. Um, and they're you know testing exactly how long it takes you to reset certain aspects of your taste. But to make a long story short, if you fast long enough, you will no longer crave um, as strongly and maybe not at all, salty, sugary, fatty foods, right? And that's where we get into trouble, right? If we're eating, you know, foods high in saturated fat, we're eating the salty stuff, we're eating the sugary stuff, we're just kind of keep shoving it into our mouth. I mean, the food manufacturers know this and they have brilliantly engineered their food to make us want to just keep eating it because salt, sugar, and fat, you know, highlight our dopamine receptors and make us want more and more, whatever it is, ice cream, Oreos, Pringles, Whoppers, you know, whatever it is. So the great thing about a fast is, is that your taste buds are reset and you can, you can find food that you may not have found as enjoyable before, suddenly you're going to find tasty. So, you know, people who fast for, you know, a week or 10 days or something, they um, start eating again, all of a sudden, a stick of celery tastes almost too salty. You can, you just overwhelmed by, by the salt. Um, and, and, you know, a carrot, which before may have tasted just bland or something, now all of a sudden tastes extraordinarily sweet. So the recommendation that fasting doctors give is use that reset to your advantage. Don't go back and start eating, you know, what, graham crackers and uh, Doritos. Take this time and eat these healthy foods that all of a sudden taste great again. That's what they tell me. That's what they do with their patients. Uh, and they find that it works. Now, it's very hard getting people to stick with that because they go back out in the world and everywhere they turn, you know, at every cash register in their office, there's a vending machine just filled with crap every party and dinner they go to, you know, it's just, it's all bad food is all over the place. So it is very difficult. And I don't think anyone has solved the problem of like, okay, great. Everything tastes great now. We'll eat that. But what do I do when I'm tempted by something? And that's the problem because people often think, oh, you know what? I could just have a handful of Oreos or whatever it is. Problem is it re that resets your taste buds too. And all of a sudden you become acclimated to super sugary, super fatty things, maybe super salty things, whatever it is for you. And then all of a sudden that carrot doesn't taste as good anymore. So you kind of have to stick with it. And um, most people who think, oh, I can work in some things, it ends up not working out so well. It is called The Oldest Cure in the World. Steve, where can people get this book? Yeah, well, anywhere books are sold. <laughs> so online for sure at your local bookstore, at, at the big Jeff Bezos retailer, you can get it. You can also uh, find it through, you can find links to independent uh, bookstores at my website, which is stevehendricks.org. And I, I'll put in a plug for uh, a website that a lot of people don't know about called bookshop.org. So bookshop will, um, functions just like Amazon. 
Uh, it's got, you know, books on there and reviews and all that stuff. Um, but when you buy from them, the money goes to your local retailer rather than going to um, the behemoths. I will. However, <laughs> yeah, you can buy it from Amazon. <laughs> I will put those links on the on the notes of the show, stevehendricks.org. And so people can read your other articles and everything else and keep up with you on there too, right? Right. Yep. And there's a, um, you know, we can only scratch the surface in podcasts, even as much as I've been yammering. And uh, I have a fasting frequently asked questions page there. It's got about, oh gosh, I don't know, 30 or 40 questions and 10,000 words of, you know, my thoughts on what the science says about how to fast. So that may be helpful for people. Awesome. I got one last question for you. Uh, creamy peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? Oh, crunchy. Man, are you a creamy <laughs> guy? <laughs> no, I'm asking you. I asked you. I so All right. actually I, I like the I, texture. I like I the like texture them. of the crunchy. I like them both. It's like sometimes I want different, right? So <laughs> all right. So now since you did that, since you turned it on me, what's your favorite? What's your favorite brand? Oh, my favorite brand. So I'm really gonna annoy you here and sound like some crazy boulder person, but we buy raw peanuts and we just blend them up in our um, food processor. So that doesn't sound crazy. That's actually good. That's very yeah, good. Yeah. I, I learned sometime not too long ago that um, apparently when they're roasted, which is what almost all brands are, um, it releases some stuff that's not good for you. And this isn't my field. I can't tell you what it is. So, but I thought, oh, well, why don't we try making our own and see how hard it is? You just dump it in the food processor, turn it on for 20 minutes, come back, you got peanut butter. It was simple as could be. So what you're saying is, is that Jeff recall did not affect you in the slightest. <laughs> not this time. Not this time. <laughs> awesome. Steve, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thanks. I really appreciate it, Tim. Thanks for listening, everyone. Now get outside and play.